Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm here with the author of a really beautiful new book that just came out this past Tuesday. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hello. Uh, thanks, Jen. My name is Edward Cahill, and I'm the author of Disorderly Men. It's a novel about uh, three men who are caught up in the police raid of a gay bar in Greenwich Village in 1962. Mm. It is, as I said, so lovely. And so um, it really stayed with me for a long time after I read it. But before we get into it too much, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to the book, because I understand that you are an English professor at Fordham. And I'd love to know more about um, your research and perhaps how you moved from your research into fiction writing. Thanks. That's a great question. And I love to tell this story. I was in the middle of uh, of a very long second book project. Uh, my first book was the book that I wrote to get my PhD, and it became my first monograph. And I was working on a, a second book on the, uh, the, the cultural history of social mobility in the early modern Atlantic world. It was a long project. And halfway through it, I was on sabbatical, sitting in the reading room of the New York Public Library. And it occurred to me that I needed to stop immediately and write a novel. Life is short, and I wanted to write fiction. In academia, you know, we write for very, very small audiences, and I wanted a bigger audience. I wanted more interlocutors, and I had some stories that I wanted to tell. And so uh, this this uh, this story, which I had originally imagined as a screenplay, just became a novel. The characters came alive, um, and uh, and I couldn't stop doing it. So after a few chapters, I realized this is what I was now doing. I did a lot of research. You know, I'm, I'm trained as a researcher, but really more in the 18th century than in the 1960s. So mm -hmm. I had some work to do, but uh, so many great resources um, online and in print. Um, so that was a pure pleasure for me. And then writing the novel was also just a joy. That's great. And um, yeah, that's really interesting, I think, how it sort of provided a break from the the academic writing. I also I was a I am a PhD in medieval history that I am not currently using here. <laughs> but um the entire time I was writing my dissertation, I always was writing comics too on the side. And I don't think I could have done one without the other. They were really dependent on each other after a while. So <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so what drew you to this time period and this place? Um, it's pre-Stonewall, uh, Greenwich Village in the early 60s. And I'm wondering, like, what was the inception point, perhaps? Was it a character or an image or maybe a source you looked at? Uh, where did it it start to, to come together? You know, it was an idea. Um, and it was the idea about about gay men fighting back. Um, so many of the the queer stories of the past, like from the Well of Loneliness to the Pillar and the, the City and the Pillar and the Children's Hour, end badly. And um, you know, the more I I just kind of you know, gay history and gay literature was uh, sort of a sideline for me. Um, but I saw all these stories that just ended so badly, and um, and it 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 occurred to me that it would be really fun to tell the story of uh, of a group of men fighting back. And and now, what does that mean, right? To fight back. Every gay boy who gets picked on in the schoolyard has a fantasy of fighting back. Um, but what would that look like? Um, and, you know, what I realized is that, in fact, you know, queer people have been fighting back in lots of different ways, um, sometimes politically, sometimes physically. You know, Stonewall was a little bit of both. 
Um, but in 1962, the year of uh, that my novel takes place, gay boxer Emil Griffith pummeled to death his opponent for making an anti-gay slur. This was in Madison Square Garden. Um, he wasn't going to take it. Now, this is complicated, right? We don't want anybody to be pummeled to death necessarily. But, you know, gay people wanted to stand up and, and feel their strength and feel their worth. Um, Sometimes fighting back also means fighting, you know, the the demons within, um, the the shame and the fear. So fighting back means, you know, pushing back against, you know, your oppressors, but also reckoning with yourself. And this story just seemed like uh, it needed to be set before uh, before Stonewall. Um, in 1958, um, there was a, a a protest at Cooper's Donuts in Los Angeles, um, and a bunch of uh, drag queens uh, and trans kids mostly decided they weren't going to take police harassment anymore. And so they fought back. In 1966, the Mattachine Society had their famous sip-in at uh, Julius Bar in New York, where they insisted on being served as homosexuals. Um, uh, all of these, these, these different protests preceding Stonewall were signs of a gay community that was emerging as a community uh, for the first time, recognizing one another really identifying uh, still dangerously and and uh, and uh, and tentatively, but identifying as gay. So I wanted it to happen before Stonewall, really on the cusp of a lot of major social change in uh, in uh, in you know the US. And you know so much happens in 1963. Um, so I decided 1962 was the was the right year to start. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating period and it is really interesting to see how like through these individual lives that you investigate here, how you can see the the different historical threads that are leading to this big historical moment that is Stonewall, but to see it sort of in this like nascent state still and to see the beginning of a of a community. Um I really love that perspective because I think one of the questions I had written was about the ways in which the novel through these three lives portrays the different constraints placed on these gay men and the ways that they survive um, those constraints. But as you were speaking, I realized it is really so much more about their, yes, their survival techniques and the ways that they do, they are active rather than passive. Um, so could you talk a little bit about where these three people came from? Did you conceive of their lives individually as threads and then interweave them? Or like, how does how did that structuring go? Yeah, you know, I wanted three characters that um, that were going to live comfortably in my head, and so emerge from at least some of my experience. But uh, you know, Roger is uh, is a married banker, lives in Westchester. Uh, Julian is an English professor like myself, um, and Danny is a grocery clerk, and he's really kind of the uh, the most out of of the three men. But even he's not out because nobody's really out in 1962. It's just too dangerous. Um, you know, coming out stories, in a lot of ways, these are three different coming out stories. Coming out stories are essentially heroic, right? There's a kind of, there's an existential trial, um, right? It's an internal journey as well as a social and a spatial journey. Um, and I grew up gay and closeted. Um, and, you know, it taught me an awful lot. Um, it taught me to be a sympathetic truth teller, but also sometimes a sympathetic liar and a resentful truth teller. Um, so the closet produces really interesting character, I think, uh, plus a real challenge. Um, and so each of them has different challenges. You know, Julian is really in love for the first time in his life. Um, Roger is recognizing that maybe this closeted life he's been living is killing him. 
Um, and Danny realizes that he deserves better than he's been getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so each of them in their own way is sort of resisting the forces that have, uh, that, 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 you know, that are suffocating them. And the raid is the provocation, right? It's the provocation for them to begin to think about what they want in life and how they might get it. Something I thought was so, so interesting was the ways in which, um, you know, the three lives really depict how how class is shaping their experience as well and shapes their options. And then the fact that they meet in the back of this, like, you know, police uh, vehicle um, is, is almost like really democratizing in a way that it's, you know, bringing all these people from different classes, different lifestyles into this one place together where they're all kind of categorized as the same, you know, at that time. And so, yeah, was that something that you were thinking of too? Like how their individual, um, I guess, like how the the circumstances of their lives shape how their experiences differ, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to have characters coming from very different perspectives with very different assumptions, very different senses of what they were entitled to. Roger believes that he's entitled to quite a lot. Uh, Danny's not exactly sure because he doesn't come from uh, from very much. Um, um, and, you, you know, Julian comes to realize that even though he's had a pretty rough life himself, once he sees Danny and he realizes that Danny has so much less than he has, it's a real eye opener for him. Um, you know, that he's a kind of, uh, he's a pariah, but he's been very pampered as a pariah. Um, so uh, so each of them is, is bringing these different assumptions. But, you know, the other thing about, about modern gay culture is that it is essentially de- democratizing. Um, if you don't have a wide range of choices to be, in, to be in public, if you only have a few choices, you go there and you're going to find everybody. Right. And you're going to find, uh, you know, uh, people, men of different shapes and sizes, different ages, different uh, races, um, different expectations. Uh, If there's only one gay bar in town now in New York in 1962, there were plenty of gay bars. But in fact, they opened and shut and closed on a fairly regular basis. Um, So there were some limitations. But gay bars were really democratizing sites. you know, Roger is not interested in getting together with someone like him. He's interested in a, a much younger man. Um, uh, Danny is interested in men of all kinds. He's particularly interested in men who are different from him. And in a way, the gay scene, you know, it has its own problems of, uh, of you know, of uh, racism and hierarchy for sure. But gay culture has always been democratizing because, you know, queer people uh, have fewer options and um, and that has sort of thrust us into a diversity that we might otherwise have uh, avoided. Hmm. That is super interesting. And I wonder if, you know, as you were talking, I was wondering, too, if like the fact that, you know, these bars were closing and opening and sort of that kind of meant that you had to be plugged into a community at least some degree, you know, to find out where to go and, you know, where it was going to be safe to go and who was going to be there and all that kind of stuff. So, like, there's an interesting tension there between, I guess, people who are marginalized by society and who, as you know, as a result of having to be quiet about their lives, but who are also, like, plugged into a community that sort of keeps them from being, like, too isolated. That's a very interesting little tension at work there. Yeah, and I'm glad you said the word community because... um the community in this novel and in 1962 in New York was inchoate. It wasn't really quite there. Not every gay person wanted to be a member of a gay community, right? Some gay gay people, uh, some of the early activists wanted to assimilate. They didn't want gay their gayness to be a distinction. Others said we have to form a community based on our differences in order to support one another. Now, 
in a way, there's there's a so there's a community emerging here. When Roger and Julian recognize they have something in common, when Julian and Danny recognize they have something in common, something like a community forms. Danny has his friends, Julian has his friends, Roger really not not so much um, just yet, but all of them live in what you might call a low information economy, right? There is no public discourse of homosexuality that isn't criminal that isn't about uh, the criminality of homosexuality. Um, gay pride doesn't exist. Um, and so a raid headline in the newspaper, you know, um, uh, police raid uh, pervert nest. Um, this, you know, this can destroy people's lives because nobody knows what that means. Um, and they, they think the worst kinds of things. So in a low information economy, that raid headline can be absolutely destructive and something to be terrified of. At the same time, it told queer people where to go to meet others like them. So when that information ended up in the newspaper, that's, that's how they knew where to go. Because otherwise, how would you know? There are no magazines. There are no newsletters. Um, nobody's talking about it. You have to know. Wow. That's fascinating. That's like a sort of a a community coming together by sort of reading against the grain, right? <laughs> like by a, having a unique way of sort of like reading and relating to, to information out there. That's like really fascinating. Um, I was also really interested at what the book has to say about <clears throat> masculinity or rather masculinities and how it is multiple and sort of that there are different versions of even gay masculinity. Um, my dissertation was on medieval masculinities and the Crusades. And so that's something I'm kind of always thinking about uh, when I'm reading about men. And so, yeah, I'm wondering if, yeah, you could talk about, I guess, sort of how how the, how the way that the characters um, perform their masculinity perhaps is also shaped by their uh, experiences. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question. At the very beginning of the novel, Roger is uh, at Caesar's Palace, the gay bar that's about to be raided, and he's flirting with a young man, and he recognizes that in his flirtation, he's starting to use um, a lot of extra language, um, dainty little adverbs, um, just to kind of extend his sentences a little bit and give them a little bit of style. And he recognizes that he never talks this way at home. He never talks this way at work. But in a gay bar, he feels like he can he can show a little bit of style, right? He's finally able to kind of let go of this sort of masculine stranglehold and be a little bit just more himself. Um, but otherwise, he lives in really a prison of masculinity. He feels that he has so few choices. Julian, you know, is an academic um, he he writes about Shakespeare's sonnets, um, which if you've read them, you know that they're really pretty queer. Um, so he's he's more comfortable with a bit more fluid masculinity. Danny is also more comfortable because um, while he can uh, he can camp it up with his friends and is really comfortable, um, you know, being in uh, in uh, in a world of trans people uh, and uh, me, you know men in drag. Um, He's also a fighter, so he has lots of different aspects to uh, to his personality. He grew up with brothers who beat him up on a regular basis, so he knows how to take care of himself. Um, and so for Danny, masculinity is really, really very flexible. For Roger, masculinity is something that is really tight and uh, and and constrictive, and he's only just beginning to uh, to see that he might not need to live that way. Mm. Yeah, in a way. Um the the need to perform is almost like directly related to 
their privilege and their comfort in life, you know, because Danny has so much more to lose, but at the, no, he has so much less to lose rather is what I meant than Roger does. And so he can sort of like ease into performing himself a little bit more than Roger can at first. That really is, I think, crucial to this idea of performing masculinity is that if you didn't, you could be arrested. You know, if you were if uh, two men dancing in a bar, you could get arrested. A man wearing a woman's blouse, you could get arrested. So literally, the stakes are are very, very high for not sufficiently performing masculinity. If you happen to give a little bit too much swish to a police officer, you could be arrested uh, for lewd and lascivious conduct. It really was that simple. So it's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. And that does sort of speak to, I guess, sort of like, the uncomfortable closeness of like performance and then like code switching as a survival technique. Um, That's very, very interesting. Um, Was there one character who was sort of easier to get into the headspace of, of another? Like, was there someone who was easier to write or harder to write? Um, I think Danny was probably the hardest to write because he's in a way the least like me. Uh, he's, uh, you know, I come from an Irish family, so uh, I have I have uh, sort of a sense of his Irishness, um, uh, but he's the least like me. Um, and he's also the least aware and the least sort of self-reflective. And a lot of Danny's story is about kind of coming into a, an awareness of the political stakes of his queerness. Um, and so, you know, representing that, you know, I, since I've, I've been an academic for many years and self-reflection is, uh, you know, uh, my middle name, um, mm-hmm. the other two characters, Julian in particular, were really easier. But Danny um, and, 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 and representing that process by which Danny comes into self-awareness um, was definitely not easy, but was also an awful lot of fun. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this book. I'm wondering, um, do you think you will return to writing novels or do you have to go back to your research agenda immediately or what what is next for you? I'm I'm very very comfortably situated at Fordham University where they let me do whatever I want um, as long as I teach my classes uh, and so I'm already in the thick of a second novel and um, you know my 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 training and my first book uh, was in early American literature um, 17th 18th and 19th century mm-hmm. and when I was casting about for a second project I had all sorts of ideas I was thinking about. Um, uh, um, the Atascadero Mental Hospital in California, where men were sent in the 1950s and 60s and suffered uh, electroshock therapy and all sorts of, uh, you know, torturous remedies to cure them of their queerness. Uh, I thought about another of a number of other stories, and the last thing I wanted to do was to go back to early America. And yet, I found myself ultimately writing about. Boston in the early 18th century and the smallpox epidemic of 1721. So that's where I am right now, which in a way is is kind of taking me back to my uh, my scholarly research, but now with a very different purpose. Oh, that's cool. So is it is it harder to write something connected to your research in the fictional space or is it easier? Um, you know, being a scholar in a lot of ways taught me how to be a novelist um, because I've just read so many stories and I've talked about how they work and how they don't work. Um uh, I mean, actually, I had to write a novel in order to learn how to write a novel. But, um, you know, being uh, being a scholar of early American culture and history uh, gives me ready access to, you know, to lots of uh, truisms about how people lived and how they thought and how they spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm certainly very drawn to, I mean, 
if I write historical fiction, it's because I kind of think like a historical fiction writer. Um, I'm a little anachronistic, I suppose. Um, I'm really interested in the language of earlier times. I didn't think I'd be going back this far, uh, but I've read an awful lot of early 18th century writing. So I, I, uh, I have a good sense of how they, how, how people sounded, uh, what their priorities were, um, what their religious psychology was like, what their sort of commercial ambitions might've been like. Um, so I, I bring a lot to it, but of course, you know, every novel requires research. And so I'm still doing an awful lot of, of, of original research. Oh, great. Well, yes, best of luck on that project. And I hope that when it comes to fruition and it's out in the world, maybe you'll come back and talk about that one with us. <laughs> that would be a great pleasure. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really lovely. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. All right, listeners, please pick up Disorderly Men. By the time that you hear this, it will be out in the world. It's out in the world right now, actually. Um, So please head to your favorite independent bookstore or library, wherever you like to go get your books. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.